Well, good morning again. Welcome to the Lord's house and welcome to you who are also uh, far removed location-wise and maybe live streaming or watching on the archive. We're in a new series uh, called Guidepost. And uh, I'm eager about this series. I'm eager about all of them, but, but this one is so substantial and it, it's intended to give us guideposts to the rest of Scripture. What are the essentials that we should know as Christian people so that we might find our way into the more complex or even by comparison trivial teachings of the Bible that are also certainly important? What is a guidepost? Well, a guidepost by definition is a post, <laughs> usually mounted on the roadside, you know, a street sign or at the intersection of two or more roads bearing a sign for the guidance of travelers. Can you imagine if we didn't have street signs, if we didn't have guideposts, or today, if I didn't have GPS? You know, I don't even care if I miss a turn now because GPS will guide me back to that place. Uh, anything serving as a guide or providing guidance. You know, it's essential because there are so many choices and they're not all equal. There are better ways and there are worse ways to get anywhere. But that's also true in Christian matters. You know, we are bombarded with messages, uh, even in the Christian church, even in churches that all teach that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He was born of a Virgin Mary on Christmas. You know, he died for us and he rose again. Even if they have those basic teachings, apart from that, there's just a a wide divergence of teaching. How can we know what is right and what is wrong without guideposts? And why should we even care? There are guideposts. Even from the second century, you know, just one generation removed from the apostles, they understood that Christians, especially new Christians, needed some guidance to understand what was most important and what was a pillar of the faith as opposed to maybe a secondary teaching. In the first Enchiridion, which uh, simply is two Greek words to be held in a hand, something that could be taught to people who could memorize things who weren't literate perhaps, couldn't even read and write, how can we teach the basics of the Christian faith to new Christians? And the first Enchiridion, the things that they felt every Christian should hold in their hand were, were just three guideposts, faith, hope, and love. You might recognize that from Paul's uh, writing to the church at Corinth in chapter 13. He goes, now these three abide, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is love. And, and so that generation first removed from the apostles said, you should know these three things, faith, that everything else about God can be discerned by believing that he loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to die for us. And that clears the path for prayer, that clears the path for a relationship with God. Hope, I have hope that no matter how difficult a situation is, God will not abandon me. And I have hope for eternal life as well. Uh, faith, hope, and love. And love defines how Christians should interact with other people, believers or non-believers. Jesus said they will know us by our love. That was the first of the uh, guideposts that were established in the second century. Then came the Dark Ages. The church got political. Thank God the church is not political anymore. <laughs> but back in the day, the Holy Roman Empire really was political. I mean, they were up there with monarchs, you know, like France and, and uh, the princes of Germany and the king of England. The Holy Roman Emperor had an army. 
and uh, he forced uh, certain uh, political alliances. In fact, he began to appoint people to be bishops, and even uh, at a lesser place, to appoint clergy to various posts and villages just because the family had supported him financially or had sent men to his army. They didn't even need to have theological training. And so the church was completely lost until the Reformation came about. You know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Well, in 1483, Martin Luther was born. So it was about the same time. He was nine years old when Columbus discovered America. We're not going to get into the Leif Erikson thing, but, uh, you know, about that time, you know, Luther was working in Germany, and, and he began to see that as he read the Scripture as a, as a monk, that what was taught in the Scripture and what the church cared about were two different things. And he said, we don't need to change the church. We just need to get the church back to where the church was, you know, a, a reforming of the church based on the basic teachings of the Scripture. And so he began to uh, visit the congregations in his portion of Germany. And this is what he discovered. He said, the deplorable, miserable conditions that I discovered when I visited the congregation has urged me to prepare and publish this catechism, a summary of Christian doctrine in this small, plain, and simple form. Good God, what manifold mystery I, uh, what manifold misery I beheld. You know, he just, he just saw that things were crazy. Uh, the pastors weren't able to teach because they didn't know it themselves. He goes on to say, the common people, especially those in the villages, that's a place in central Florida where retired people go, The common people, especially in the villages, have no knowledge whatever of Christian doctrine. And many pastors are altogether incapable and incompetent to teach it. They live like dumb brutes and irrational hogs. He didn't mince words when he taught. You know, I think if I said some of the things he said, you'd throw me out of here. And yet, now that the gospel has come, you know, they know they're forgiven because of Jesus, they've nicely learned how to abuse all liberty like experts. And, and so he wrote the catechism, and we call it the six chief parts of the Christian faith. And they include the Ten Commandments. You know, why are these commandments set apart from all the other rules and regulations in the Scripture? The Apostles' Creed, the nature of God, prayer. What does the Bible really teach about prayer? Baptism, the Lord's Supper, confession and absolution, also called the office of the keys. You know, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the six things that we're going to be talking about throughout this series. And today I'm going to be talking about confession. You know, it's, a, it's an essential guide uh, to understanding uh, our relationship with God and how it can be established and, and what he would have us know and, and, and why darkness is so debilitating and why light is so rewarding for Christians to walk in. And so we're going to talk about that today. And, and as I began to think about that, I thought, well, what current you know, metaphor, what current situation uh, provides kind of a relevant understanding of this idea of you know, coming out in the open with a private failure or a private awkward mistake? And I, I thought of Jimmy Fallon, of course, and, and uh, his hashtags, Every Wednesday, he publishes a hashtag on something that's going on in life, and he encourages people to uh, publish their failures or somebody else's failure uh, on that topic. Let me uh, show you what it is. And on Thursday, he reads them. And uh, 
so he had a hashtag mom text. You know, what, what did your mom ever text you that was strange or, or uh, off base? And, and somebody wrote this one. I once got a text from my mom where you're amazing, autocorrected to you're adopted. <laughs> now, being adopted is an awesome thing, but you don't want to find out about it that way. You know, so... Obviously, the autocorrect uh, was uh, providing information that wasn't true. Or this one, my mom once texted me, can you come over because I want you to take a selfie of me. <laughs> I'd say this mom is maybe out of touch with theology or with uh, current technology. Or on Valentine's Day last year, my mom texted me, enjoy your VD. <laughs> How did she know? You know. <laughs> Not the best time to abbreviate, Mom. And, and, and there, there are a lot of them. He does it every week, and, and I kind of enjoy certain aspects of his program, and this is one of them. He wants hashtag weird waiters. Have you ever had a weird waiter who did something inappropriate or awkward? And if so, text me about it, and, and so, uh, or tweet me about it. And, and so he said, a friend once said, can I order off the kid's menu? And his waiter said, if you call me daddy. <laughs> Gotta love that waiter. Or how about this? A direct quote. Can you pay me in cash, bro? I think I'm getting fired in about 20 minutes. <laughs> so, and, and as I've continued to look uh, into you know, current confessional models as I was thinking about this message, I, I, I come to find out, or came to find out, that, that there are sites where you can actually go and make confession. Uh, a place called Whisper, a place called Reddit, there's another one called Simply Confess. And I thought, well, there's got to be some amusing anecdotes there of things that people confess. And then there were some. Uh, one said, I once ate dog food just to see what it tastes like. Well, that's cool, but I don't care. And there's a, there was another one, a, a, a gal who said she took her best friend into a haunted house simply because she wanted to smack her in the face and she knew she could do it in the dark and she wouldn't know who actually hit her. <laughs> Getting a little more serious. And then there was a, there was a kid who, uh, who posted on one of these sites that uh, when he was in fourth grade, they were learning about environmental issues and greenhouse effect, and, and he realized that the oxygen he breathes is released as CO2, and it bothered him that he was contributing to the problem. And so for a couple of weeks, he tried to breathe more lightly so he would not affect the world in a bad way, you know? And so there were some amusing ones like that, but mostly they were different. Mostly I was moved by how serious uh, some of the things of our past can trouble us for years ongoing. Uh, One fellow said, uh, I was voted most likely to succeed in high school, but not really. You see, I was in charge of counting the votes and I altered them (laughs) so that I would win. He said, I still don't know why I did that and it bothers me to this day. You know, he was still troubled by something he did. In the past, why should that trouble you? You, know, you just laugh it off and just say, that was stupid. I was 16 or 18 or whatever, but it still troubled him to this day. Or some even got even deeper and more troubling than that. I had an abortion when I was 19. I was a freshman in college living in the dorm. I had a boyfriend and we were serious, but we weren't ready for children. There were people outside picketing the abortion center, and I've never felt more ashamed and more humiliated in my life. That was 25 years ago, and I'm crying right now as I type these words. 25 years ago. 
Now, what's interesting is not only what people confess on these sites, but I wonder why. What is there in the human condition? I'm not even talking about Christians. I'm just talking about people that needs to unburden themselves through confession. And then more important, perhaps, I thought, than even the confessional statements were the comments that came in behind the confession. You know, there were some people that were flaming them, you know, for things that they did. But uh, most of most of those sites will get rid of something like that if it's demeaning or inappropriate. But more likely than not, there were people, and I'm sure many Christians, who came to provide counsel and direction. And I thought, well, you go, Christians. You don't have to do that only in church. And it was interesting to see how they responded to those difficulties. But they just went on and on, page after page. I've been using heroin for almost two years, and no one knows it. Or how about this girl? My parents don't know it, but I started stripping to make ends meet. You just think of the conflict, knowing how embarrassed or how ashamed or or how sad her parents might feel, regardless of the moral rightness or wrongness of that. As a child, my uncle molested me and raped me. She didn't have any place else to go and make confession except to anonymous strangers on a site like Whisper or Reddit. Or I'm dying of Lou Gehrig's disease and I haven't told anybody yet. Or I'm having an affair with a married woman. Or I falsely accused a man of raping me and I ruined his life. Wow. Wow, the burden that she must feel about that. Max told me of his plans to commit suicide and I did nothing. I derailed a freight train. I still consistently lie about attending college or having a military record. What is there about the human condition that that just needs to vomit, you know, these past indiscretions or troubling experiences? I've started self-hurting again. Or my husband is choosing depression and I'm not going to deal with it anymore. I'm leaving him. And then this one. Nobody knows, but tomorrow is my last day. If we were given anonymity, I'm sure there are things in your past, in my past, that, you know, if we haven't yet, we need to unburden our hearts with and confess. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, there is no one without sin. We have all failed. We failed to meet the expectations of others. We failed to meet our own expectations. And we certainly have fallen short of your perfection. And Lord, we feel at a loss as to what can be done about it. Some mistakes in the past, uh, you know, we can't correct. And others, we don't know what to do. Lord, help us understanding this guidepost about confession and, and, and what you can do for us to free us from the guilt and shame that the devil wants to use to beat us up and, and uh, to keep us handicapped from enjoying and embracing life and being helpful to others because we feel self-condemned. Lord, bless us uh, to better understand what you would have us know about confession. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look with you at a few verses in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. It's neatly divided into two sections. Uh, the first section talks about uh, there is light and there is darkness. There is right and there is wrong. It's not your right and my right or your wrong, but 
might be okay for me. No, the Bible says there is right and there is wrong. There is light and there is darkness. And here's why I would prefer, God says, that you would walk in light. So that's the first section of this scripture. And that's kind of objectively true for everybody. But then it gets subjective in the second part of the scripture. And it says, and, and here's what you should do with your darkness. And here's how you can handle it. And so this is the scripture from 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him. And now declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It's just, just light, just blessing, just favor. That's the nature of God. But if we, have claim, if we claim to have fellowship with him, and, and yet we're not willing to walk in the light, we still walk in the darkness, you know, we're lying, and we're not living in the truth. But if we walk in the light, as God is in the light, We have fellowship with others who are also walking in that light. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all the guilt and all the shame, purifies us from the thing that demeans us, that drags us down. If we claim to be without sin, and the reason I know this passage is because I I mentioned the small catechism. We still teach those six chief parts of the Christian faith uh, to kids 13, 14. And as adults, we we should still know these six guideposts. That's why we're teaching the series. But when I was 13 or 14, we would do something called confirmation. We still have uh, that practice here where kids come up before uh, their families and before other Christians and they say, you know, up until now, you know, I pretty much believed what my parents taught me. But I've examined these things and this is what I say to be true myself. And then they choose a passage for themselves that will be a guide for their life. It's just tradition. It's not required anywhere. It's not that... One church is better than another for doing this. It's just the way we do things to kind of be a practical way to help. But back in my day, you weren't allowed to choose your own passage. The pastor who felt he knew you would choose a passage for you. And I don't know why, but this is the passage the pastor taught uh, that gave to me. And he said, Steve, let this be your guide in life. I don't know what he knew about me. If we claim to be without sin, (laughs) we deceive ourselves, Steve, and the truth is not in you. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we claim we have not sinned, we're just making God out to be a liar because the Bible clearly says all have sinned and fall short of his glory and God's word does not abide in us. Uh, as, we, as we look at this uh, section, uh, we realize that uh, that's, that first section about light and darkness, there is light and there is darkness in the world. Now, I do think that maybe even the majority of pastors get this wrong. And if so, uh, the majority or even, you know, a, a significant majority of Christians get this wrong. It's as though we teach, and it's hard for me to sometimes listen to teaching on Christian radio because of this. They teach, this is wrong, and this is what you ought to believe. Let me correct your thinking, let me correct your theology, and then they'll proof text you to death. They'll show you the scripture, and, and they'll prove that they're right and you're wrong. And it just annoys me. It's just like, I or, or this is true and this is false. And, and it's all about doctrinal haggling, about who knows what and who doesn't know what, and it divides Christians across the board. And I believe that there's right and I believe that there's wrong. I believe that there's truth and there's falsehood. 
but not for truth's sake and not for right's sake. God teaches us and wants us to know the right and wants us to know the truth because it's better for us. Not so that we would be superior to others, not so that we would do well on a test, not so that we could haggle with other Christians or non-Christians and say we're right and you're wrong, but because he wants us to come into the light because it's better to live in the light. It's just the reason, the motive is more important than the actual teaching. You know, I, I think about this when, when I come to the scripture like this in Galatians chapter five where Paul talks about why we should walk in the light. He says the fruit of the light or the fruit of the spirit or being uh, uh, in fellowship with God is to, is to love, it's to have joy, it's to have peace, it's to have patience, it's to have kindness. This is what God wants for us. All the good stuff in life. This is why he wants us to know those things. Gentleness, self-control against such as these, there is no limitation. This is why God wants us to know the truth, not so that we can be better than others who uh, have a less uh, of a tight grip on the truth. I like the way uh, Peterson in his book uh, called The Message And if you struggle in reading the scripture, or even if you don't, if you know the scripture by heart, I would encourage you to pick up the message. It's uh, by a pastor, Peterson. Uh, He he really knows the Bible really well, and he has paraphrased the Bible in language of today, and it's kind of just fun to read it. And so I checked some of these passages today. What what does Peterson have to say about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. This is how he puts it. What happens when we live God's way? What happens when we walk in the Spirit? What happens when we're in the light? Why, he brings gifts into our life. Much the same way that fruit appears in a healthy orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in our heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. Wow. It changes us. So God cares about what's true and what's right because it's better to walk that way, to be in the light. Didn't Jesus say, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full? Not so that you would know what's right or what's wrong, but when you, when you walk with me in the light, you will have life and you'll have it completely and even Paul, when he was uh, about to be uh, executed for being a Christian in, in a non-Christian time in Rome, uh, he wrote to the young man Timothy who was going to take over his ministry, and he gave him instruction about what he should teach uh, to other Christians. And he, and he said to them, uh, command them to do good and be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share, so that much good could be done, so that the church would get wealthy? No. He said, in this way, they will lay up for themselves treasures of a firm foundation for the coming age. You know, don't only concern yourself with this world. Lay up treasures for yourself. Don't worry about rewards in this life. Let God reward you uh, for all the awesome things that you do through faith uh, in the next life. He said, they will lay up a firm foundation. Not only that, but they will take hold of life that is life indeed. He didn't even say do it to honor God or do it because, you know, you don't want to embarrass your heavenly father. He said do it because you will take hold of life that is life indeed. He didn't even say do it because other people need you to do it. He said do it for your sake. When you do it for your sake and you're doing it uh, the way God would have you walk in the light, you honor God certainly and others are blessed. But that should be the motive. 
think of the implications. You know, if, if we have friends and family who are outside saving faith, if we try to argue them into the faith, if we try to proof text them about why we're right and why they're wrong, what impact will that have? None. But if we truly have compassion for them as God has compassion for us, and we want this because, you know, I love you and, and I just want you to have joy in life and, and, I, and let me just share what I feel about this issue because, man, I, I just love you so much and I care for you. What an inroad, what an opportunity we would have if, if that was how we led the discussion rather than proving right or wrong all the time. Well, if there is light, then there is also darkness. There is evil in the world, and there is Satan, and there are fallen angels who mean to trouble your life and uh, cause you to, uh, to feel shame and guilt and burden you uh, with mistakes. In fact, uh, the same scripture where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he also talks about the walking in darkness part that so troubles our life. He says, the acts of our sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. You know, what is that going to do for your life? You know, if walking in the light is a blessing, then walking in the darkness is a curse. Here's how Peterson puts that in the message. He says, it's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time, but making yourself the center of the universe. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods. Magic show religion. Paranoid, loneliness, cutthroat competition. All-consuming yet never satisfying once. A brutal temper. An impotence to love and be loved. Divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits. The vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. Ugly parodies of community. And I could go on and on. This is the stuff. If if you, if you don't walk in God's way, if, if you choose to say, you know, I, I prefer the flesh, I prefer things that I know God is opposed to, it will lead to shame, it will lead to guilt, it will lead to anger, it will lead to jealousy, it will lead to defensiveness, despair, it will lead to people who are haunted and chased by past failures, hurts, and trouble. And try as you, hard as you can, you will not be able to shake it. They will be like a nasty stain on a light-covered carpet, light-colored carpet. You know, you, you can treat it for a bit, and it looks fine, and then in a few days, the stain comes back to haunt you. So what can be done about it? This is where the guidepost comes. This is the path that leads to freedom, the path that leads to uh, blessing, the path that leads to release into the freedom that God would have you experience um, there are just, uh, uh, let, me, let me read that section of scripture again and then let me just make three points about it. He said, if we claim to be without sin, you know, if, if we're defensive and we say, I don't care, you know, I'm better than most and, and as good as some, we deceive ourselves and we're not living in the truth and that is not gonna be a prosperous way. 
But if we confess our sin, if we just own it and confess it and, and receive his grace, he is faithful and just and will forgive us from our sins and he will purify us from that which demeans us, unrighteousness. But if we do claim that we have not sinned, if we just argue that, hey, it's okay, you know, it's not that bad, we make him out to be a liar. It is destructive. And his word, his truth is not in us. There, there are just three steps to the issue of confession, this guidepost that God would offer to free you from your past and, and from the things that trouble you. First of all, just own it. <laughs> you know, own your sinfulness, which is a condition, but also own that one sin. You know, don't defend it, don't excuse it, don't justify it and say, well, if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't be like this, or if this person quit behaving that way, I wouldn't behave this way. You know, just own it, don't excuse it. Just own your sin, that's step number one. Uh, We know King David as a great monarch in the Old Testament. You know, he fought Goliath, but he did many other things. He established Israel as a great nation. But I think what most of us today love about King David are his Psalms, his poems. And, and David was a sinful man, don't get me wrong, you know, just incredible uh, sinfulness in his life. But he maintained a relationship with God and he could deal with his sin because he understood confession and absolution. There are a number of Psalms where he just absolutely bears his soul to God. And if you're taking notes, uh, I'm going to just mention three of them that you could read. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 130. Man, I go to them all the time. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and Psalm uh, uh, 130. In Psalm 32, you know, when you're not willing to own it, when you're not willing to admit it, when you defend it, he said, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away, and I groaned all day long. For day and night, you know, my conscience, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was sapped like in the heat of summer. You know, have you ever tried to do a hard job when it's, you know, in the 90s? You know, you just have no strength by the end of the day. He said, that's what it was like when I refused to acknowledge my sin. Here's how Peterson puts it in uh, his paraphrase of that scripture. He says, count yourself lucky. God holds nothing against you if you hold nothing back from him. If you're willing to lay it out there. David understood that and came to realize that. When I kept it inside, you know, when I didn't confess it, when I tried to excuse it, when I tried to live with it, My bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. 25 years after my abortion, I still felt the pain of it. I still cried when I typed the letter. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life were dried up. I no longer enjoyed even living. But then I let it out. I said, I'm going to make a clean breast of my failure to God. And suddenly the pressure was poof, gone. My guilt dissolved, my sin disappeared. I like the way David says it further on in the scripture. He says, but then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Not just my sin, you you released me from the guilt that was so oppressive. So first of all, you know, just own it, just admit it. When I, was a, when I was a kid, uh, we used the same liturgy over and over again. I was raised in the Lutheran church, and, and uh, it became so rote and so ingrained in us. My dad could go through the liturgy, and he could swat a kid three, three people down from him, and he would never miss 
uh, a word in the confession or in the Agnes Day or whatever, you know, like, you know, I don't know if he's worshiping, but he knows the words. And, uh, but they've been ingrained in me, and there was a confession from that old 1941 hymnal that I still remember, and it was ingrained in a good way. It was uh, just David admitting to the Lord and not holding back his confession. It went like this. Oh, almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto thee all the sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended thee and justly deserve thy temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them. As a kid, I used to say, but I am heartily sorry for them. (laughs) But I'm heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter suffering and death of your son, Jesus, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Man, there's just no room there. You know, you just, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the snail on the bottom of the ocean, or at least a portion of the snail. You probably heard that phrase. You know, that's, that's how low I am, Lord, and I'm not going to defend anything I've done. So first, own it. Secondly, confess it. There's a story in the Bible that I love, and it's probably the best example of, uh, of just confessing it. It's in Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, an expert in religious things, and the other was a tax collector, the scum of the earth. And Jesus, as he tells the story, has a bunch of Pharisees standing around him. And the Pharisee prayed, and he lifted his hands up to God and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other sinners like robbers, evildoers, or adulterers, or like that tax collector over there. For I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I receive. But the tax collector that he despised and was so superior to, Jesus said, that man would not even look up to heaven. But he beat upon his chest and he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you this, the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves, God will take care of you, and he will exalt you. Own it, confess it, and then last, accept God's grace completely. Understand that a price has been paid. You know, they say salvation is free, but it's really not free. It costs a great deal. It costs the life of Jesus, God's son, so that we might receive what we could not do for ourselves, perfection, release from our sin and from our guilt and from our shame. This is uh, Lent, and during Lent we make a lot about uh, the sacrificial lamb. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I like the way First Peter refers to it. He says, you were redeemed from your empty way of life that you received from your parents and your grandparents and your forefathers, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb unblemished without defect, who was chosen before the creation of the world for this very purpose. Peterson puts it this way, it cost God plenty to get you out of that dead end empty-headed life that you grew up in. It's been paid for, paid with Christ's sacred blood, you know. He died like an unblemished sacrificial lamb. And this was no afterthought. Even though it was 
only lately, at the end of the ages, become publicly knowledge, become public knowledge. God always knew he was going to do this for you. It is because of this sacrificial Messiah, whom God then raised from the dead and has glorified, that you can trust God. He will keep his word. He kept his word in this most important thing. God, that you know. Uh, God, that you know you have a future in him. You know, you know you can trust uh, the future uh, in this life and in the life to come because of what he has done for you. So how do we, how do we wrap this up? Let me, let me just say this to you, that no matter what troubles you, no matter what past indiscretion, no matter uh, what embarrassment uh, you've encountered in your past, God knows it. He's not surprised by it. He's not offended by it. He's not shocked. You're not an embarrassment to him. He's not ashamed of you. He only wishes, he only wishes that you felt about yourself the way he feels towards you. You're beating yourself up and God doesn't want that for you. He wants you to be free of that shame and that guilt by owning it, confessing it, and understanding what he has done to free you from it. Jesus said, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden and I will give you what your soul needs. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. People think religion is a bunch of do's and don'ts and I believe if you listen to a lot of Christian preaching, that's what you get. You know, be better, do better. He says, my yoke is not that. Take my truth upon you and learn from me for I am gentle I'm not abusive. I'm not demeaning. I'm not questioning. I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find that rest that you need for your soul. For my way is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Please join with me as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. Stand if you would. And, and uh, I thought it'd be fun to just go back to 1941 and, and, and pray that prayer together. As, uh, as we prepare to receive uh, this gift of forgiveness wrapped up in the Lord's Supper and for the strengthening of our faith. So we pray together. O oh, Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto thee all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended thee and justly deserve thy temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray thee of thy boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter suffering to death of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Amen. And then the pastor would say, Almighty God has had mercy upon us and has given us his only Son to die for us. It is for his sake that he forgives us all our sins. To those who believe on his name, he has given the power to be called the children of God, and he has promised them the Holy Spirit. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And then he would conclude by saying, Grant this, Lord, unto us all. Amen.